This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you will see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Jesus paid it all. Can the Pope really sing that? Because if he paid it all, then he actually paid it all. It's either he paid it all or he did not. Okay? <laughs> Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne to worship you again as your people that you gave to Christ. We come not by our own strength, but by the power and merit of Christ. We come by your Holy Spirit, Lord, who also intercedes for us and uh, just forms things in our mouths that are consistent with your will, Lord, I pray. We now ask for your help in understanding your word. May you give us clarity, give us ears to hear, Lord, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his gospel. Just pray, Lord, that you continue to uphold us by your gospel and that you cause us to continue to love that Christ paid it all. And let this be the hope of each and every one of your people, that they stand accepted in the beloved because he accomplished, he finished, and perfected our salvation. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back, John chapter 9. This is going to be the number two from last sermon. So we're going to have another sermon to close off the chapter, the Lord willing, next week. And then we go into John chapter 10. Wow. Looking forward to John chapter 10. Lots of glorious theology by the Lord in there. John 9 verses 24 to 30. No, actually to 34. John 9, 24 to 34, we are going to bite a big chunk. Otherwise, we have another sermon. <laughs> so John 9, 24 to 34 says, So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner... I do not know, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. 
But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Verse 31, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Yeah, that's being very nice. (laughs) Okay, we have to shut you up because you are saying mean things to us. The title of our sermon is, I think Ginny can guess this one. I was blind, now I see. And verse 10, or he opened my eyes, he opened my eyes. Or, (laughs) you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. That's a good one. We're going to work on that one. We have a lot of teaching a lot of theology to connect so that we have an understanding of what's going on in this conversation. There's a lot of excellent theology that we have to unpack. And one of the things that you're going to find as you're reading is the theology of the union of the believer with Christ. It's not as explicit when you're reading this story, but it's there and we are going to Unpack it so that you can see it. Union with Christ is a very important doctrine of salvation. The believer is united to Christ. They are united to Christ from before the foundation of the world by election. But in time, Jesus shows up and he gets united to this man even in this story in a very remarkable way. So we are going to be working that and. To build our background, we are just going to go through the theology of John, basically the words from the Lord himself, about union. Because that is very pervasive in the teaching of John, especially coming from the mouth of the Lord himself. The language of abiding. If you abide in me, I am in the Father, that kind of language, that's union language. So we're going to go to John chapter 6, verse 56, and we're just going to read it. And he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. John 14, verses 10 and 11. John 14, verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. That's the union of Christ with the Father. John 15 verses 1 to 5. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
He takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Union language. First John chapter 2, verses 25 to 28. First John chapter 2, verses 25 to 28 says, This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So this is the theology of John. The union of Christ with the Father, the union of Christ with the believer, the union of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the union of the Holy Spirit with the believer. Okay, So Christ is the elect of God. You see, the common denominator in all the union is Christ. Christ is the elect of God. It's not by accident that even in the Trinity, Christ is the one who is in the middle. It's God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's not by accident that on the cross, Jesus also is in the middle. And it is not by accident that Jesus also is the judge. He goes in between life and condemnation. So Christ is the elect of God. And the Father has set his seal on him. The Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. And the Father and the Son are one. Believers are in the Son. Because God the Father chose them and put them in the Son. All things are in the Son because the Son has to have preeminence over all things. There's nothing that happens outside the Son. The holy angels were chosen in the Son. The elect are all in the Son. They are all in Christ. All creation was made through the Son as the Logos. And without him, John says, nothing was made that was made. And the Son holds all things by the word of his power, according to the right of Hebrews. And in him, all things consist. So in the Son, God is summing up and heading all things in Christ Jesus. And the believer is predestined, is chosen, is loved, is called, 
is justified, is sanctified, is accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in the Son. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name. What is that saying? It is saying Jesus is preeminent in all things and mediates all things. And nothing is accepted. It means all of God's works are done through Jesus. All of God's works are done through Jesus. It means all of God's glory and relations to all of creation is in Christ Jesus. So Christ has been appointed to be the judge of all men. And in the book of Acts, it says Christ is the one that has been appointed by God to perform all judgment. He gives life or he condemns. What is the point? Christ cannot be bypassed. You cannot bypass Christ. You're going to meet him in salvation or you're going to meet him in condemnation. You can ignore him for a minute, but you can't bypass him. So the elect of God are in Christ and they abide in Christ and they abide in the teaching of Christ and they bear fruit in Christ. Those who are in Christ and are born again identify with Christ and his teaching because they have been born of God. They've been born of God. The man born blind is in trouble with the religious officials, the Pharisees. Why? Because he is in Christ. That's the only reason. He is in Christ. He is joined to Christ. He is in union with Christ. And his theology is different from that of the religious authorities. And that's why he gets in trouble. And we are going to have a number of things that we are going to touch on as we develop this teaching. Because there are a lot of gospel nuggets in this chapter. And I thought maybe again to touch on the Sabbath and healing because this story happened on the Sabbath. The man received his sight on the Sabbath. Though he was born blind, Jesus has come to give him rest on the Sabbath. To give him rest from his blindness, his blindness acquired from birth. Because Though chosen in Christ, he was born in Adam. And that is why the Holy Spirit is careful to tell us and trace the blindness to birth. He has always been blind. So all those who are born in the first Adam are always born blind. That's the significance of being born blind from birth. So his blindness could not be removed by his mother or his father, or his relatives, or friends, which doctors of the day, and not even the religious leaders, because they too were born blind. A blind man cannot perform eye surgery on another blind person. The blind cannot lead the blind. That's what Jesus said. 
they will both fall into the ditch. And so people could only speculate of the cause of his blindness and say, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? But what they don't realize is they suffer from the same blindness as this man. It was not anything to do with what the parents or the man did, but it was that Christ will be glorified, that God will be glorified in the giving of sight of those who were born blind. But Jesus was fond of healing on the Sabbath. I was thinking about that. I was like, that is very curious to me because a good number of the healing by the Lord happened on the Sabbath. Why the Sabbath? Luke 13, verses 10 and 12 says, And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who, for 18 years, had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. That was on a Sabbath. John 5, 9-13 Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. So this man in John chapter 5 again was healed on a Sabbath. Mark 3 verses 1 to 5. Mark 3 verses 1 to 5 says, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And this is not the only account of Jesus healing people on the Sabbath. The lame, the crippled, the blind, the mute, and many others were healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. Why? Because those health conditions were a picture of what has become of all men because of sin. This is what has become of all men because of sin. But also, it shows us the burden that the law has on those who are under it. The inability to find a cure. The inability to find a cure is a picture of their inability to give the law what it demands. Perfect obedience. These people, with all their infirmities, could not find a cure to their situation. So that is saying, men by themselves have no ability 
to find cure to their real disease, which is sin and their breaking of God's law. They have no ability whatsoever. So the law condemns them and they have no ability by themselves to give the law what the law requires. We can't lift ourselves from under the condemnation of the law. And so these conditions are a picture of the spiritual restlessness and helplessness and the deformities that characterize all men, both the old and the young. And one who gets healed from these spiritual infirmities gets their rest. They get their Sabbath. They stop working to find a cure to their condition. And so Jesus did a lot of healing on the Sabbath, not to break the Sabbath because he was not breaking the Sabbath, but to fulfill what the Sabbath actually meant. The Sabbath was to teach that one only enters into God's rest, his rest, the true rest, on the day that they were healed or loosed from their spiritual infirmity by him. This is very important. A sinner enters into the Sabbath only when Jesus shows up. Okay, That's the true Sabbath. When Jesus shows up and he heals you, and the healing of Christ is to show you the righteousness that you need before God. Because, as I said, these are all pictures. Jesus is not just healing people to heal people. He is healing people to teach the ministry of the gospel. So the Sabbath is when Jesus shows up for you. Because when Jesus shows up for you, he's going to give you rest. He's going to say, well, I am the way of peace with God. You rest in me and all is well. So the true understanding of the Sabbath is not when you decide not to do dishes on Saturday or not to do whatever kind of work on Saturday, you're still not getting it. The Sabbath is the day that Christ came and healed you. How? By opening your eyes to his gospel. That's the day of your rest. It is the day that he came and straightened your spiritual back that was bent and bowed down because of sin and condemnation and could not be straightened up. It is the day that he came and stopped your bleeding like that of that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That's the Sabbath. That's the Sabbath. The day that he came and asked you to stretch your withered hand, your withered soul. Because by yourself, you could not stretch out your own hand. By yourself, you could not enter into God's rest. So a withered hand has no power or ability to do anything. And that is you and I before Christ came and commanded us to stretch out our hands. And the Sabbath is when your eyes were opened up to the truth of the gospel. And when your eyes have been opened up to the truth of the gospel, you rest from your attempts 
to find a cure of your infirmity by yourself. You rest from finding a way to be accepted by God. You rest from trying to be good to be accepted by God. And you rested from trying to see things in the darkness of your blindness. And you rested from trying to jump into the pool that you may touch the disturbed waters, but never finding anyone to help. So you and I have rested because Jesus is our rest and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The gospel of grace, therefore, is God's invitation that we may be accepted by him in the finished work of Christ. And so the ultimate understanding of the Sabbath is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the message of the Sabbath. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this ex-blind beggar has entered his rest, his Sabbath, because he is in Christ. But when he enters into Christ's rest, he is now all about Christ. Even though at this moment, Christ has not yet been fully revealed to him. But yet he sides with Christ and says the same things as Christ. For many years, the religious leaders did not care about him. Until Jesus came and opened his eyes. Many in the religious world do not care what you do or what you have to say until your eyes get opened to the truth. And then they do not like to hear from you. They do not like to hear from you. Because you come and you upset their traditions. So verse 24 says, that means we are in the text. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The Pharisees are not satisfied with the answer that the ex-blind beggar has given them or that he gave them earlier about how he received his sight. So they call him back again into the witness stand because they think he is lying about how he received his sight. They are questioning him on how he received his sight. They are questioning him about how he now sees the gospel and sides with Jesus. They are questioning that it could not just be by Jesus touching his eyes and telling him to go wash that he received his sight. To them, that's not enough to cause a man born blind to see again. This cannot happen because after all, Jesus is a sinner. He is a Sabbath breaker. So that just compounds the problem. And so they want the man to testify against Jesus. To go against a true testimony of how he received his sight. They think that his testimony sounds too simple for one who was formerly blind. That they even question if he truly was the blind beggar they thought they knew. Remember, they called on the parents also and asked them, is this your son? So Jesus' formula of giving sight is so simple 
that the religious people don't know what to do with it. So they question if the man was truly blind. According to them, he should have at least walked the aisle. He should have gone through some baptism. He should have been prayed for. He should have given a testimony to the congregation. He can't just come with his eyes opened without us knowing and getting involved in it. So their objection is a religious objection. God has to check with us before anyone can have their eyes opened. The Pharisees think Jesus could not be from God because he violated the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath. They have zeal without knowledge, according to Apostle Paul in Romans 10. When you have your eyes open to the truth, it always appears like you are lawless in the eyes of the religious and unconverted. Because these Pharisees, they are busy measuring the law to themselves. That is why they are failing to understand the meaning of the Sabbath. They are measuring the law to themselves instead of measuring themselves by the law. So they call Jesus a lawbreaker because they are judging him not by the law per se, but by themselves. So the religious people, they look at themselves as the custodians of truth and yet deny the truth when it shows up in the person of Jesus. So the expression there, give glory to God, is a Jewish expression to say, tell the truth. (laughs) Tell the truth. Do not lie to us. Tell the truth. How did you receive your sight? So the religious authorities condemned Jesus for not keeping the Sabbath. And so by condemning Jesus, they are also condemning the man who was healed by Jesus. Because they associate the man with Jesus. So they think Jesus is a sinner. But some of the onlookers do not think so. They say in John 9, 16, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Surely, how can one who is a sinner open the eyes of a blind man? If the blind man became blind because of his sin, or the sin of his parents, who then is able to open his eyes? Since all men are sinners, it is impossible that another sinner would open the eyes of one whose blindness is from birth. So it's actually a theological statement. What is that saying? Is it saying the opening of the eyes of one born blind can only be done by one who is God? You cannot understand anything spiritual unless God opens your eyes. You never understand anything because of me. If you understand anything to be true, it's because it's God who is opening your eyes. Because understanding does not come from a sinner. It comes from one who is God. And it is also saying, By the deeds of the law shall no man be justified before him, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law cannot justify one who is born blind. They are not able to see. God 
has to come and open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel and how such a one can be accepted by God. So to have your eyes open is the work of the gospel. It is the work of Christ himself by his spirit. So this group of people who are on the side of Jesus are preaching the gospel and speaking very good theology. And as usual, there was division because the Pharisees, the religious ones, have a different testimony of Jesus than what Jesus has of himself. The man born blind has received his sight and his theology is clear. The man says Jesus is a prophet. What else could he be? But that drives the Pharisees nuts because no prophet in the Old Testament would have violated the Sabbath commandment as Jesus was doing. But among them stood one whom they did not know. This one is greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. This one is greater than Jonah. He's greater than Solomon. He is greater than all the fathers, their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Before Abraham was, I am, is his self-witness. So we are still riding on that testimony of Jesus from John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. And that spills into John chapter 9. Verse 25. Verse 25 says, he then answered. This is the ex-blind man. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The man born blind says, I do not care what you guys have to say. I do not know whether the man is a thief or not. (laughs) All I know is he paid for my lunch and I ate and I'm full. (laughs) Whether he robbed a bank, I do not know and I don't care. (laughs) What is that saying? It is saying a sinner is not able to make a proper evaluation of the person of Christ by themselves. He has to be revealed to them. Christ has to be revealed to you as we are going to see later in the chapter because Jesus is going to actually come back to the man and show himself to him. And the ex-blind man ends up worshiping Christ and receiving the testimony of Christ. This is what happens. All a sinner can do is tell the difference between their former state of blindness to the new state of sight. All a sinner, one born blind, can do is tell the difference between their former state of blindness to the new state of sight. This they give testimony of. Because remember, John is applying his theology that he developed in the first two, three chapters. He is applying the theology of being born again from John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, 8, Jesus has said, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The man only has heard the sound of the blowing of the wind. He has seen the swaying of the trees and the blowing of the leaves. He has born again and his testimony is 
I don't know how the process happened. (laughs) But for sure, my testimony is, I was blind, but now I can see. Do you see that? I have received my sight. Why can't you see that he opened my eyes? And my brothers and sisters, you have to have been blind before for you to give that testimony. You cannot give this testimony that I was blind, but now I can see unless you were blind before. Those who say they came and chose Jesus by themselves are still in their blindness. Because if they had been blind and their eyes were opened, they would have said, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They would have given all glory to their sight to Jesus. But these people give glory to themselves for having the ability to see Jesus by their own blind eyes. And what that means is that their eyes are not yet opened to the truth of who opens whose eyes first. If our theology of salvation is truthful, we have to acknowledge our former complete blindness and give all glory to Christ for coming and opening our eyes. So they said to him, verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So the Pharisees ask again, what booklet did you read? What fasting plan were you on? Daniel's fast. (laughs) And of course, Daniel's fast, those boys did not lose weight. They actually gained weight. So if you go on Daniel's fast, you're going to gain weight. You're not going to lose weight. Just say, did you pray Jabez's prayer in 1 Chronicles (laughs) 4.10? Did you push you over with his anointing? Did you tell you to tithe all your income? Tell us the procedure of how your eyes were opened. So they get fixated on how, on the procedure, on the process of how his eyes were open. People love to know the formula of doing things. They want to write the recipe down (laughs) so that they can go home and make it themselves. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? So the man born blind told them how he came to Christ. He told them how God caused him to see the gospel. But see the reaction of religious men. They do not listen to his testimony. They do not receive his testimony. They have no ears to hear. You can teach them and show them the truth, but will not receive it. But the man born blind says, Okay, listen, guys, you do not receive my testimony of how my eyes were opened. So why are you still bugging me about it? Why are you irritating me about how I received my sight? Do you want to hear it again? Do you guys want to be the disciples of Jesus too? (laughs) By this, the man was saying he was already a disciple of Jesus. He has already been schooled by Jesus, even as he is talking to them. 
How? Because he abides in Christ. The words of Christ abides in him. They abide in him. That union and identity with Jesus is now at play in the background. He was called to be cross-examined, but now he cross-examines the prosecution. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And this is the experience of all who are in union with Christ. When you come to union with Christ, you side with Christ, you say the things of Christ, and religious people hate you. You are going to be hated by the religious people because religious people have their own doctrines, they have their own confessions, they have their own statements of faith that they hold to so blindly that they are blinded to the revelation of truth. Hear what they say to the man born blind, verse 28. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You see the distinction. The religious leaders did not say, Praise be to God who opened your eyes. Rather, they reviled him. They mocked him silly and said, Not as friend, you are his disciple. Let us tell you the truth. We do not follow Jesus like you who is deceived by him. We follow Moses. We follow Moses. We are law keepers, not you and your friend who is a sinner, who is a Sabbath breaker. So do you see the distinction between the two groups of people? That's the division. Christ is already dividing. There are those who are disciples of Christ, gospel believers, and those who think they do the law. And it is those who think are keeping the law of Moses that revile the true followers of Christ. They brag about Moses and say, Moses cannot be set aside. But Jesus said, if you believed Moses, if you followed Moses, if you followed the law, then Moses would have directed you to me. For the scriptures testify of me. A true disciple of the law does not brag about Moses. They brag of Christ. A true disciple of Moses listens to Moses because one who listens to Moses goes to Christ. The, the one who listens to Moses goes to Christ. They don't stay with Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15. God says through Moses to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. You shall listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased Listen to him. You listen to Christ. This is the prophet that Moses was talking about. So if one says they do the law, they have to come to Christ. Because the law testifies of Christ. It points to Christ. But if one comes to Christ, and then they go back to Moses, it means... They are not following Moses or Christ. 
if you come to Christ and go back to Moses, it means you're not listening to Christ and you're not listening to Moses. Okay? So Moses will condemn you. Jesus said that. He says, Moses is the one who is going to condemn you because you did not listen to what you were saying. And this is the understanding that many professing Christians and pulpits do not get. They think they are honoring the law by reviling those who are disciples of Christ, those who stand only in the righteousness of the new covenant that is in the blood of Christ. They hold Moses to be of equal value to Christ. They picture the law as the end of Christ. They picture the law as the end of Christ. They don't picture Christ as the end of the law. But the Bible says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. So if you are still going back to the law, it means you are an unbeliever. So they have no understanding. The law, the old covenant, was given as a servant of Christ. It's a servant. Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. It's glorious. I love it. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Look at Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was faithful in God's house, but in the lowly position of a servant. That is not an exalted position. The law does not occupy an exalted position. It occupies a lowly position in God's house as a servant. Listen to this. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. So the law was for the testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ, see the contrast, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. See the position. Moses is servant. Christ is the son. Whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses because Christ occupies God's house as the Son. And the Son abides forever in the Father's house, not the servant. The new covenant is of more glory than the old. The old covenant and the new do not live in the same house. They don't. The old covenant was a house built by one who was a servant. A servant. 
an inferior house because of who built it. Because the writer of Hebrews says, the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So the old covenant was mediated by Moses and Moses is inferior to Christ. So you want to be in the house that Christ has built. So Jesus Christ is the builder of the house of the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews says, and those who are in it, we are Christ's house. Because of his person, as the son of God, his craftsmanship is superior to that of Moses. But we are comparing builders here, right? (laughs) So Christ has better craftsmanship than Moses because he is the son. He just builds better houses. <laughs> so the believer is not built by Moses. We are not Moses' house. But by Christ because we are Christ's project. The believer is sanctified and justified in Christ and not in Moses the servant. And so the house that he built, that is the house that Christ built, is Worthy of more glory than that of Moses. Jesus did not do a fixer-upper of Moses' house. He destroyed it and built a new one in its place. With him as the foundation and cornerstone of that house, right? So Jesus does not use bricks and mortar from Moses. He has his own bricks and mortar. He builds his own house with his own materials. So the believer belongs to the house of Christ built by the Son, whose house we are, the writer of Hebrews says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. So the sign that we are, the house that Christ built is going to be seen in our confidence of holding to the gospel. So our hope is in the new covenant and not in the old. And going back to the old is not holding fast to our confidence. Yeah, right. So people have no understanding of the gospel. Moses is the schoolmaster to Christ. He is a servant. He is a babysitter. His time and function was temporary. He had to be superseded by a more superior mediator and covenant and house builder in the person of Christ. Moses had to be thrown out because the law is not of promise and is not of faith. The inheritance of salvation is not of the law, but of promise. Abraham did not get the inheritance of life and justification by the works of the law but by faith. So why would a believer go back to a covenant that is not of promise? Because the old covenant is not of promise. Why then would you want to go back to that which is not of promise to seek inheritance of justification and sanctification, which things God only gives by faith and promise? Justification, eternal life, Sanctification, you name it, is only given by faith and promise and no other way. And the old covenant does not give those things 
because the old covenant is not of faith. That's the teaching in the New Testament. Romans 4, verses 13 to 16. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You see the contrast. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. So you see, faith and promise go together. Faith and law do not mix. They don't go together. They don't. Apostle Paul says, verse 15 of Romans 4, For the law brings about wrath. That's the function of the law. But where there's no law, there also is no violation. You can't violate a law that does not exist. So those who are in Christ cannot violate any law because Christ already fulfilled the law on their behalf. Whatever the law required, he has already given it to them on their behalf. That's the beauty of the gospel. Verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. So the law is not of faith, but life and inheritance of justification, sanctification, all the blessings in Christ can only be given by grace. Do you hear that? So the only way that you are going to have these blessings is by faith and not by the works of the law. You are not going to be sanctified by the law because sanctification is a blessing of the promise that is in Christ. Listen to this. Let me read this again. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Apostle Paul says, the promises of God in salvation are by grace. And because they are by grace, they are given to us by faith or through faith. And the law cannot mediate the blessings of salvation because it is a covenant of works. It is not a covenant of grace. You see that? So you can't be an heir of God's promises by obedience to the law. We need to understand this because many preachers and people are tripping and saying all kinds of useless things. Galatians, okay, I'm learning how to pronounce Galatians. Galatians for <laughs> Galatians 4, 21 to 31. I'm not going to do much comment on it, but I'm going to read it to support the arguments. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Paul writes and says, tell me, verse 21, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Like, stop for a minute. Are you actually paying attention to what the law is saying? You seem not to be hearing what the law is saying. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the born woman and one by the free woman. But the son by the born woman was born according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise. You see that promise again? The promise. This is allegorically speaking, 
For these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. So even at the time of writing, the Jews were still in slavery to Rome. God was actually applying the theology in a real way. (laughs) But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. See the contrast. Apostle Paul is making a contrast. He's not mixing Hagar and Sarah. They are two different women, right? Who are giving birth to two different sons, one by promise and one by the flesh. Verse 27, for it is written, rejoice barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who is a husband. And you brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. The children of promise do not have Hagar as their mother. It matters who your mother is. If you are a child of promise, Hagar is not your mother. The law is not your mother. You don't want, you don't go to Hagar to be breastfed by Hagar. A lot of Christians are going back to Hagar to get a sippy cup. You don't go back to Hagar, you go to Sarah. Verse 29, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. And this is what is happening also in John chapter 9. The Jews are reviling the man born blind who now has been born of God. The man has received his sight because his mother is Sarah. He identifies with Christ. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the born woman and the son. For the son of the born woman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, his conclusion, we are not children of a born woman, but of the free woman. We are not Ishmael. Our mother is not Hagar. And we are not on Mount Sinai. Ishmael may scoff and persecute us. Those who think are still doing the law can scoff. But we are the children of promise. We are heirs with Isaac. We have the inheritance which is by promise. Our brother is Isaac, not Ishmael. And our mother is Sarah. We are of the free woman. Which means those who are in Christ are not under the law. They are not under the law of Moses. The law is the yoke of bondage and those who are in Christ are not to be entangled again by that yoke of bondage. Verse 29 of John 9. The Jews say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, the Pharisees. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The Pharisees say, unlike you who was healed by this man, Whose origin we do not know. We, we know ourselves. <laughs> we are disciples of Moses. God spoke to Moses. But surely 
cannot speak to this one who breaks the Sabbath. Consider your ways, son. (laughs) Change your mind. You are being deceived by this Jesus. You are the only one who believes this. You are taking this grace thing too far. People can't be saved by grace without being good. People can't be saved by grace without following Moses. Who are the theologians that you are reading? That give you understanding that is contrary to our books and our theologians. Who are you listening to? We have some excellent theologians like C.S. Lewis. (laughs) We have this guy and this other preacher. Or I've been listening to this preacher for all my life, 20, 30, 40 years. How come you challenge him? How can you go against their theology? There has to be a third use of the law in sanctification of the believer, not because the text says it, but because John Calvin said it. And John Calvin's theology is put on par with the word of God. The word of God that says, no, the blessings of Christ, the inheritance of salvation cannot be had from the law. Do you hear the law? Your theology cannot have come from God if it goes against all these illustrious theologians and their commentaries. (laughs) Which commentary have you been reading? We surely do not know where you get your theology from and you need to be careful. You need to be careful. You need to be very careful. That's what they say. Oh, you need to be careful. You need to be careful. Your theology is antinomian (laughs) because you are telling believers that they are not under the law. You have to give them Moses. You can't just let people loose. You have to give them Moses. And your understanding of God's sovereignty makes God the author of evil. God's moral law still stands because Christ only removed the ceremonial law. And it goes on and on and on and on. But it comes down to this. Jesus said, you make the word of God of none effect by your traditions and many such things you do. It's all about tradition. When you read Apostle Paul, you read Galatians, you read Romans, you read Second Corinthians chapter 3, you read the right of Hebrews. You cannot read those books and come out saying you're still under the law. It does not teach that. So the only way that men are still propagating that teaching is because they're maintaining their traditions. Let's go to verse 30 of John 9. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. The man continues to mock them, and I think he's having a very good time doing it. (laughs) He says, Yes, you revile me, But here's an amazing thing. Your own theology does not hold very well under scrutiny. It does not make sense. You guys do not know. You have no idea where this man came from. And yet he opened my eyes. Where could such a man come from who opens the eyes of the blind if not from God? The love of your theological traditions has blinded you to the truth. And now you are saying things that don't make sense. If a man 
born blind receives sight, receives spiritual sight, it can only mean that the one who gave it to them is from God. Who else gives sight to the blind but God alone? It's God alone who can open eyes. And this is in keeping with John 3.27 where John says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. A man can receive nothing. A man cannot have their eyes open unless it comes from heaven. And it is an amazing thing that a preacher of the gospel does not know that people only receive sight when they have been opened by one who is from above. Many pulpits are occupied by men who do not know how blind men receive their spiritual eyes. The teaching of free will theology is the summary of that theology. Free will says those who are born blind are able to open their own eyes without receiving sight from heaven. They are able to choose Jesus since after all, he wants all men to see. But that is not the testimony of the man born blind. If your eyes have to be opened, it can only come from heaven for no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. No one knows who the Son is unless the Father reveals him. And Jesus said to Apostle Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 31 of John 9. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. The man born blind continues to give his defense of Christ. He is refusing to quit. First he says, if you knew anything about God, you would know that he does not hear sinners. He has no business listening to what you have to say or I have to say. And if Jesus opens my eyes, it's a sign that he is not a sinner. He is only opening my eyes by the power of God. So Jesus is a God-fearer and he does the will of God and God hears him. Wow, that's good theology. And it sounds like the man has already read John 5.30 where Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear, I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. But this is a question that we have to ask. Where is this former blind man getting his theology from? Because his theology is on point. It is too good to be true. He is saying the theology of Jesus. Having just met Jesus on this day. What is happening? The blind man, the ex-blind man does not have the book of John to read. He is in union with Christ. Apparently, Physically, Jesus has left the man, but he has not left the man. Jesus has not left the man since the beginning of the conversation. Physically, is not where the man is, but spiritually, he is still with the man. Jesus is still the subject of discussion. Jesus has to remain the center of discussion 
because that is John's focus in his writing. But let's hear why this man continues to give good theology. Matthew 10, 16 to 20. And this is from Jesus himself. Matthew 10, 16 to 20. Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Does that not describe the man? Has he not been handed to the courts to be interrogated in the synagogue? Jesus says, when this happens, it is always for his sake as a testimony to those who are against him. But then Jesus says something remarkable in verse 19 of Mark 10. He says, but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. Jesus says, do not carry your PowerPoint slides. When it's time to speak, in that hour, in that time, it shall be given you what to say. And this man is being given in this hour what to say, what he needs to speak. But Jesus, who is going to speak for me, verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. So it is not the man speaking it is the spirit of the father who speaks in him. That's what is happening in John chapter 9. It is the spirit of God who is speaking to the Pharisees. Verse 32. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Since the beginning of time, it has never happened that anyone opened the eyes of one born blind. It can't happen. And this is a spiritual statement. It's not really about opening the physical eyes. Ultimately, it's talking about there's no man who has ever been able to know who God is by their own power. God is the one who has to come to them and open their eyes. There's no understanding of Christ and the gospel unless Christ comes and opens the eyes of a man. And also what that is saying is there's no man who can save another man. Salvation is only from him who is from God. Spiritual eyes only come from him who is from God. It is he who opens the eyes of those that are born blind. Verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And since this man has opened my eyes, he has to be from God. Otherwise, he could do nothing. And that echoes Jesus' earlier statement in John 6, 63, where Jesus said, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. If this man was just a man, his flesh would do nothing for him. If Jesus was just some Jew, some Nazarene, he would not have been able to help the man. So he has to be from God. Hear that? Because the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. Verse 34. 
They answered him, You were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. So the Pharisees are not very amused by this conversation. And so they put him out of the synagogue. And all those that are in union with Christ, all those whose eyes have been opened, shall be put out from the assembly of those that are religious, whose eyes have not yet been opened to the truth of the person and work of Christ Jesus. And the man gets kicked out as a testimony of him leaving behind the blindness of the religion of those who are not born again. That's a very important statement. The man gets kicked out. And that's God's testimony of him leaving the false religion of those men who are not born again. Their eyes have not been opened. So they don't really know the truth of Christ. And so they kick him out. And praise the Lord that they kicked him out. Sometimes you need to be kicked out. And probably he was thinking, oh, wow, my life is bad. I've just been kicked out from my church. But you never know why God is doing it. But he's saying you have to leave that place. It's not good for you. Second Corinthians 2, 14 and 16 says, and we'll close with that. This is the testimony of the man born blind as he gets kicked out. <laughs> Second Corinthians 2, 14 to 16 says, as testimony of the ex-blind man. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? So you see again the division. The aroma of life and the aroma from death to death. And Christ is still dividing. The man born blind has been led in triumph in Christ and has been given a sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place, even in the face of these religious leaders, these Christ and gospel haters. And this is the testimony of those who are in Christ. That is the testimony of the blind man is going to happen if you go into any religious congregation, religious place, and you tell them, about the truth of Christ and how God actually saves sinners, guess what? They're not going to like to hear that. They're not going to like it. They're going to kick you out. And say, oh, no, 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 you can't come and tell us about that grace, grace thing. Men have to do something. We have to follow the commands of God. We have to follow the law. We have to do the law. We can't just be like the world. We can't just be, no, 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 no. What they're teaching is not correct. But what is happening is they are stumbling at the gospel. If you take back the law, you are removing the offense of the cross. If you go back to Moses, you are trying to remove the offense of the cross. You have to stand in Christ alone. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you again for the testimony that you have given us through the blind man, the one who was born blind, And we pray that this would be our own testimony, that we also were born blind, but because of Christ who showed up, we now can see. We can see that salvation is not by the works of the law, 
that salvation is only by faith in Christ and what he accomplished in his life and in his death. Lord, I pray and thank you for where we are as your body. May you cause us to continue to hold to the testimony of the gospel all the way to the end. And we know, Lord, there's going to be those who oppose and revile us because we stand in the righteousness of the gospel. But Lord, may you give us always the testimony that Christ is all. We pray for your people. We pray for all those who are listening and who shall listen to this message also, Lord, that you may give them understanding. May you be with us the days ahead. May you continue to uplift us in all things and just praying again for all provision in all things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.